Welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Our passion as a church community is to see Jesus at the center of all things. For more sermon content and information, check out soullesschurch.com. Uh, Psalm 51, verse 1. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, <clears throat> according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts and in the hidden part, you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God you will not despise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I want to begin with a question this morning as we kind of pursue this idea we're going to talk about today about recovering something. And just in light of recovery, I wanted to ask this question. Think about your own life. I want you to think about uh, the things in your life that maybe you've gained as skills or abilities, okay? I'm kind of looking around the room knowing some of those actually just offhand. But ask this question. What skills or abilities... Did you once excel or exceed at that you don't as much anymore? We're laughing, aren't we? Because we all have our, like, Uncle Rico sport, right? Our own Uncle Rico ability. We used to be able to throw a pigskin over them there, mountains, and then life went on. I wonder what that's like for you. I'm not assuming that you're worse at what you used to be good at. I'm not saying that. Um, I, I don't have to assume it with myself. There's a handful of different skills or abilities that I, you know, have my Uncle Rico talks with my kids about. You know, when I go to the skate park with Judah, and he's like, Dad, did you look at the trick that that kid's trying. Why don't you do that? Can't you do that? And it's like, don't test me, son, all right? All right, I got some pictures for you of uh, 18-year-old Andrew on his skateboard. I asked Brittany, I don't know, I feel like, is this more humiliating or self-glorifying? I'm not sure. Um, The the kind of gangster vibe might humiliate me a little bit. Um, This is something a little bit more ambitious. This is about 17 years old over at Tri-Rail Station. Totally got permission by security to do that. So, yeah, I grew up skateboarding. It was the skill or ability that uh, I, you, I could easily say to you today that I used to be much better at. Um, wh- what happened? Well, 
You could say, in some ways, I, I lost it. I lost it. Now, um, there's a lot of reasons for that. I'm not going to go into all of them. Some have, have to do with my lower back, okay? Um, some have to do with priorities, mostly priorities, okay? If I had this different priorities, I'd be doing that stuff again, clearly. Um, but I wonder what that's like for you. What is your hobby? What is your skill? What's that thing that at 17 years old it was easy and now it's a little bit harder? Maybe you've lost it a bit. Now, what I find when I go to the skate park with Judah, um, most of my skateboarding now at 33 is different than it was at 23. Um, at 23, skateboarding was more about discovering. It was about learning new tricks. It was about uh, kind of pushing the bar on, on what I thought I was capable of doing. Uh, whereas now at 33, when I go to the skate park, which it's like, wh why are you going there, Andrew? I know you're thinking that. But, you know, it's father-son time. As many of you guys know, my, my, my son Judah is going to be eight soon, and he's, um, he's a little ripper in the making. Um, you know, skateboarding's in the Olympics now. You aware of that? That's what I'm saying. You feel me? All right. I'm trying to have a gold medal in my house one day from him, right? Um, and, and so when I go to the skate park with Judah and uh, we have a good time, what used to be about discovery is now more about recovery. I used to discover tricks. Now I'm trying to recover tricks. That's mostly what I do. I try to play it safe when I go there. But every now and then Judah will do that. Like, Dad, can you do this? And I'm like, Yes, son, there was a time and there is a time right now, and I, I go for it. And that's most of, like, my current skateboarding experience. It's a lot of, uh, well, the word recover, okay? That's our big idea here in this message about recovering repentance. Uh, the word recover, it means this. It means to regain possession of something that's been lost. That's most of what my skateboarding is, <laughs> trying to regain possession of those different tricks that I used to be able to do. Now, Coming from skateboarding into a relationship with Jesus, I had always seen uh, a variety of different parallels. I'm not sure if you see that as well with your, your hobby or your, uh, your skill, but there's parallels that I see between skateboarding and, and following Jesus. And I think this is a strong one. Just like in my skateboarding life, there's a need to regain what I used to be able to do I found walking with Jesus now for about 13 years. I've found that regaining what I've lost to be one of my most needed practices. You know, as a Christian, a lot of times what we can think is our biggest problem is not having what we want God to give us. Like, God, I would be where you want me to be and I would be who you've called me to be if you just gave me that one thing that you haven't given me yet, and I can fall into that trap sometimes thinking that, but most of the time, if I'm honest with myself, some of the biggest issues in my life, in my spiritual journey, is not that God hasn't given me what I think I need, but it's usually that I've lost what I've already had. You ever felt that? You ever felt like in your spiritual life you lost something? Like there was a need to regain maybe the joy, to recover the passion, Maybe there was a time in your life that you could look back on that you go, man, I remember having more of God. I remember having more of a love for him, a passion for him, a concern for him. 
I've found this. The longer I walk with Jesus, it's certainly about discovery, but it's largely about recovery. And this is not just unique to us. This is like if you read through the Bible, you see this as a theme for God's people. More, more often than not, it's God calling them back to what they've left behind. You ever had God do that in your life? You ever felt like the Lord was calling you back? Calling you back to something that you've left behind? He's calling you to regain possession of something spiritually that you've lost? Now, uh, we could create a, an entire list of different spiritual attributes that we may desire to regain. And I'm, I'm sure in our community groups this week, we'll, we'll get into that. What are the different things that you feel like you've lost that you'd like to regain? But maybe at the top of the list, without even argument, I think we could say, as we scan the church at large, and maybe if we examine our lives as a whole, I think repentance is there. Repentance, regaining repentance, recovering what may have been lost in our lives. When I look at the church as a whole, what I see is, is what's missing a lot of the times um, that, was, that was more prevalent in, in the times of church past. Uh, some of the greatest studies of, of revival in church history have uncovered that the greatest moves of God in history, like where God shows up and moves mightily, it's often within context where two things are happening. And, and uh, one of my, my favorite leaders, John Tyson, has done some extensive work on this. But there's two specific characteristics of every great move of God in history. Uh, one of those characteristics is this desire for God to come. This desire for God to show up and be present. There's this kind of simple saying that comes out of this, that whenever you study the great revivals of history, what you find is that God always shows up where he's desired. God always comes where he's wanted. And I wonder how, how much in our lives there might be a deficiency of spirituality because we don't want the Lord. Or, or maybe we want just what we have. You know what I mean? Where you're just comfortable with enough of the God in your life and you got your work life, your spiritual life, and it kind of all fits into a box. Contrary, right, to Matthew 5 where Jesus says, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness... There's something about the hunger for God in history that God fills. Um, what would it look like for us to be a community of people that hunger for God? We don't just kind of eat at the table, come to church, spend time in our devotion, but our heart's cry is more of God. That's one of the main marks of great revivals in history is a deep hunger and desire for God to show up. Another one of the great marks is genuine repentance. Genuine repentance. People not just saying, God, I want you to show up on my terms. God, I want you to move in my life this way and for these reasons, but people who say, God, I turn from anything that's not you and I come to you fully abandoned, inviting all of you in my life. Uh, the great revivals of history are marked by man turning away from sin in a pursuit of holiness for the glory of God. What would a recovery of repentance look like in our generation? What would a recovery of repentance look like in your own life? Now, I want you to ask yourself this question today. In my own life, is there a need to recover repentance? How 
rampant, how prevalent, how common in your life, think about your own relationship with God, how common is repentance, a spiritual practice in your disciplines, in your walk with the Lord. I'll give two reasons why I think the need, we are at a time where we need to recover what I'll call the art of repentance. Uh, two reasons. Uh, repentance first as a right response to sin, and repentance second as a regular rhythm in our spiritual life. Two ways that we as the church and as the people of God ought to need to recover repentance. First as a right response to sin. A lot of us have not responded to our sin appropriately. We have grown comfortable with our sin apathetically. A lot of us have not responded to our sin at all. We have just sort of pushed it away, pushed it away, pushed it away without ever truly bringing it before the Lord and rightly responding before this holy God. So first, a right response to our sin. Uh, repentance is, I should say, the right response to sin. Not blame shifting, not covering it up, not, you know, using the whole forgetting things behind, pressing onto the things ahead in sort of a light, fake way, but in a, in a right response to our sin. Um, and also recovering repentance, I want to say this too, as a regular rhythm, a regular rhythm. Like our spiritual lives, they all have rhythms to them, whether they're good rhythms or bad rhythms. I, I'm not, you know, I hope that they would, in my life, they would be good rhythms, healthy rhythms. But we need to recover repentance as a, as a healthy, regular rhythm in our walk with Jesus. You know, Psalm 51 is an example that we just read of somebody repenting after, like, absolutely blowing it, okay? And we're going to get into that with David. I mean, like, if you feel bad about your sin, you're going to feel great before you leave. After you see what David did and how God forgave him, you're going to be like, all right, I'm good, okay? Um, but, but a lot of times what we can, I think, mistakenly do with repentance is, re is, is kind of relegated to certain kinds of rebellion. Or we can apply it to certain kinds of sinners. They need to repent. Repent, turn or burn. That's the idea that we can have. That's sort of like doomsday preaching that's reserved for the wicked and for the unrighteous. And what we end up at is just a bunch of Religious Pharisees that don't see our own sin. We're blind to the things in our, in our own lives that need to be repented of. You know, it, it was the great Martin Luther who was the, the forefront leader of the Protestant Reformation who began the Reformation by nailing his 95 Thesis to the Wittenberg door, protesting what Christianity had become. Uh, you could say there was a need in the church at that time to recover what had been lost. Things like sola scriptura, that, that it's by God's word alone. Things like sola gratia, that we're saved by grace alone. Uh, things also like solus Christus. Have you heard of that one? Solus Christus, all right? That's where we get our name from, that it's all about Jesus alone. As Martin Luther unveiled and, and sort of detailed his, his passionate protest with these 95 marks, here is the first mark that he began with uh, in, the, in the church's need to recover some things. He said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended, notice this, that the entire life of believers should be repentance. Repentance is not just this thing I do once to enter into salvation, but Martin Luther says that Jesus' intention is that repentance is a regular rhythm in my life because guess what? Sin is also a regular rhythm, unfortunately. We wrestle and we, we fight and we struggle and we fall. 
So sin is going to be potentially a rhythm. Repentance, Martin Luther said, should be the norm of the Christian life. It should be a regular rhythm. It should be a regular pattern. Now, uh, here's the good news that we have for us today. Uh, The good news of Psalm 51 is that we are not left on our own to figure out what repentance looks like according to our own ideas. We're not left to figure out how do I do that well or or not. I will say it's important not just to uh, recover, you know, repentance as a response and a rhythm. Uh, It's important to recover repentance the biblical way. There's such a thing, the Bible teaches that there's such a thing as a false repentance, There's such a thing, the Bible says, that it calls it worldly sorrow, where it has the guise of repentance, but it has the inward substance of self-pity. It's not a God-centered repentance. It's kind of a self-centered repentance. The Bible says about a man in the Bible named Esau, for example, that he was a man who, listen to this, he sought repentance diligently with tears even. It says, but he could not find it. So the need is not just for repentance generally, but it's repentance in a right res- as a right response in a regular rhythm as defined by what honors God in his word, as defined by what God says it looks like. Now, Psalm 51, we could call, you could write this down, Psalm 51 is a roadmap for repentance. It's a roadmap. It's a roadmap for true repentance. It's a roadmap for, for healthy repentance, not false repentance, not worldly sorrow. But here in Psalm 51 that Damien read, we have this roadmap for true repentance that honors God, true repentance that the Lord looks upon and is pleased with. That's even one of the last verses of this passage is that God doesn't delight in the sacrifice of our repentance, but what he's looking for is a truly broken heart, a truly repentant person. That's what glorifies him. And so let's, let's kind of follow the roadmap here. Let's let Siri, I mean, uh, David guide us along the way here in Psalm 51. Here's where the map starts. You can write this down. Uh, this is, this is the, the first step that we see here in Psalm 51. In this roadmap to repentance, the, the map starts with this sequence of we sin and God corrects. We sin, God corrects. This is where it starts. We sin, God corrects. I don't think I need to do too much of a study um, convincing you that you sin, okay? But it's a point that you need to remind yourself. I sin. Okay, good reminder. All right, God corrects. We see this modeled here in Psalm 51 by David himself. David begins this psalm by saying this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. And notice this, he uses three different words for his sin. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. David is bringing his sin before the Lord. Uh, He uses these three interesting words, transgression, iniquity, and sin. Uh, The word transgression, it it means it's, it's the kind of sin in which you are breaking a law or disobeying or rather rebelling against a command. You ever done that? Yeah, you have, right? Where, where if this is what you should do, this is what you shouldn't do, and you do the opposite of each, right? Uh, we're, we're constantly falling into traps of this on a small scale and also on a large scale. We know that God's word, it contains precepts, principles, commands that bring life. And because of our sin nature and sin tendency, we find ourselves often living in transgression where we violate God's law, we disobey God's law. 
We do the opposite of what he commands. We disobey. And it brings destruction. It brings the opposite. There's transgression. There's iniquity. That's another thing David says. God, blot out my transgressions. I've sinned. I've transgressed. I've also committed iniquity. Um, that's not a common word I think that we use in our, in our like, Christian confession times. You know, like what's going on in your life? You're just like, man, I've just been like just living in that iniquity this week. Just been like iniquitying it up. And, and you know, it, it's not a common word that we use, but it's important to understand the full extent of what sin is in our lives. The word iniquity, it, it speaks of this sort of perverted or thwarted mind or motive behind what you're doing. Where sin usually comes from, which is, starts in the heart. A perverted way to approach something or, or, or a perverted way to act in something or thwarted way to think about someone or act upon someone. Uh, the idea of iniquity, is it speaks to this. It speaks to the sinfulness in man that tempts man to plan his sinfulness. Iniquity has to do with, like, you start plotting how you're going to sin. Like, okay, this is how I'm going to do it. All right, Lord. I mean, not the Lord, right? Like, this is how I'm going to lay this out. That's iniquity. It's the scheming. It's the thinking through. It's one thing to slip and fall. It's another thing to jump head on with iniquity. And the last word is simply sin. And, and the word sin means to miss the mark is the, is the big idea of this word in Hebrew. It, it means not to hit the target. You know, again, the Olympics. You got the archers. You got the rifle-ers. Riflers, rifle shooters, and, and, and that's a, a fun thing to watch. I did archery a couple weeks ago at our men's retreat. Some of, our men's got, uh, some of the men in the church came up to that, and yeah, I, I'm not an archer. I'm not legalist by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, but watching these Olympians hit the target, hit the bullseye, well, sin is the opposite. Sin is missing the target. Sin, sin is not living for your intended purpose, but sin is going the opposite direction. And, and David is acknowledging his sin. This is what sin is. Um, David, in the Bible, who's confessing his sin to the Lord, I want you to know this. David is a man who sins but is called a man after God's own heart. I want to point this out. Isn't it amazing that you can do the kinds of things that David did and still be called a man, that though you might have been drawn after sin... God knows if you're truly after his heart. Now, David's a great case study in this because you could say David was drawn after sin. What, what kind of sin, transgression, what kind of rebellion is David talking about? Uh, you read about this in 2 Samuel 11, but it's, it's David's famous fall. Uh, David commits adultery. He, he commits adultery with Bathsheba. He sleeps with a woman who's not his wife, but is someone else's wife. The worst part about it was that he used his power to be with her. So it's a form of sexual abuse. It's a form of adultery. It's sin at, at, you know, at its greatest measure. It's actually the worst forms of sin is when someone uses their power in that way. It's unjust. It's wrong. Second uh, Samuel, actually, uh, in verse 11, when Nathan confronts David, he actually says that David stole, too. He calls it theft. He stole someone's uh, own wife. Um, so it's interesting. So David's um, an abuser. David's an adulterer, and David's a thief. This is wickedness and sin. David then uses his power, that same power he used to get with this woman, who's not his wife, David then used to cover up his sin. Okay? Back then, governments would, were corrupt, and 
And they would do things like using their authoritative power to cover up their errors and make themselves look better than they really are. Foreign. So David does this. Uh, David does this to the extent that he has, after trying to cover up his sin um, uh, in his own creative ways by bringing Uriah home from the battlefield to, to go into his wife to cover it up um, and make him think maybe, you know, if your wife, as your wife is praying, that it's going to be your child and not mine. David actually, to make matters worse, what he, what he ends up doing is he sends Uriah to the front lines of the battlefield. David uses his power to kill Bathsheba's husband, again, to cover up his sin. I mean, it's like a, it's like a Jerry Springer episode. I mean, it's, it's like the mafia. I don't know if I can say that out loud. But like, you know, um, but like, I mean, David is using his power to get what he wants sexually and then using his power to cover it up in murder. This is horrible sin. Now, we don't know exactly how long after uh, Nathan approaches David. There's some speculation. But we know that, that what God does when David, sin is God, when David sins, God corrects him. That's what we see God doing in the story. We sin, and this is what God does. Because he loves us, we'll talk about that, God corrects us. Now, how does God correct David? God corrects David by sending a prophet, Nathan, to him. David has gone some time of kind of pushing the sin that he's committed under the rug. And the, the idea here is he's not repentant. He hasn't repented over his sin. God sends the prophet Nathan to open David's eyes as a, as a vessel of correction and rebuke for David to see the mistake and the sin and the evil, the horrible evil that he has committed against the people around him and ultimately against the Lord. Uh, this is the sequence. We sin, and then this is what God does. God corrects us. In fact, in the beginning of your Bible, you might see at the top, above verse 1, it says, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So, so this tells us specifically that, that this psalm takes place as a response to God's correction. Now, God does this still in our lives as well. God corrects us. It's his very nature because he loves us to correct us when we sin. Uh, and if you're, if you're going right now, like where, I'm not really getting the correction from my sin that I need. Where does God's correction come from? Well, I would say even in the person of Nathan, what you have is an example of three ways that God corrects his people. Through his word, through his spirit, and through his people. Nathan embodies it as a prophet speaking God's word, empowered by God's spirit, representing God's people. Um, this is how God corrects us. God will correct us. Listen, if, if you are, are not seeing the error of your ways, you might not be reading your Bible. It's possible. It's amazing how often I find myself justifying patterns of sin and, and calling them either dysfunctions or just habits or just tendencies or just, you know, Andrew things, you know, idiosyncrasies. And then you read the Bible and you're like, it's a lot more black and white than I make it to be, right? God's word, it kind of cuts between that, doesn't it? It divides between that. God's word, God's spirit. What God's spirit does is he impresses upon our hearts. He convicts us, the Bible says. Jesus said, my spirit's coming to convict you of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. God, by his spirit, through his word, will convict us. Now, the danger in, in, in this work is the Bible also says that we have the ability to quench the spirit. So the spirit comes like a fire to burn away that sin and we all have this tendency to take a bucket of water to sear our conscience and dump it on the fire and quench out what God is trying to convict us with. A lot of times the way that we quench the spirit 
is we continue in the same patterns of sin. We don't let God correct them. We excuse them and we continue in them. And it's quenching the spirit of God. And then lastly, God uses his people. Like you need the people of God to see the areas of your life that you're unrepentant in. I do too. I can't tell you how like this is probably the most common way that you have a relationship that goes awry or you have an issue that comes up or you have a friend that's honest and you're like, I wasn't paying attention to that. I need to. I need to see the sin for what it is. And God uses people to do that. Like, okay, what's the saying? Like, only God can judge me. What verse is that? You know what verse that is? Tupac chapter 4, okay? (laughs) Only God can judge you? That's not in the Bible. A lot of people can judge you. First of all, the Bible says that, like, first of all, it says, Spiritual authority is given in the church to discipline towards holiness. That's one of the reasons why, why God calls certain men and, 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 and women to lead in the church, to, to, to shepherd and to discipline when, when sin arises. We have that in our community groups, and we all need that. The Bible actually says this, let judgment begin in the house of God. Not only God, God can judge me, but yeah, God can judge you through his church. That's why we exist. Now, when I say judge, you might be thinking like, well, it's a judgy church then. All right, it's what I thought. Christians, right? No. No, not not condemn, but use judgment to divide between what's sin and what's not and to lovingly call that out. Um, And that's also what community is for. Look at Hebrews 3.13. It says, exhort one another daily. Another version of exhort is correct. The word exhort means to bring someone up to a higher standard that they've been called to. This is why you need other people in your life than just your, yourself and, and your, you know, your family and just you know, a couple friends. You need the, the body of Christ to exhort one another daily, to call us up. While it is called today, notice this, here's the danger, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. That, that's what sin does, in isolation especially. It hardens and it deceives. And that's where David was at until Nathan the prophet came to him. Now, we sin... God corrects by his word through his spirit and his people. But I want to point out some key points about how the Lord corrects us. Some of us, we might have some legitimate, like almost PTSD because of how someone in the name of Jesus has corrected us. Maybe you feel shame for the sins that you've committed. And it's like, you're like, I'm trying to repent, but I don't know how because I can't forgive myself. And I want to point out a few key points about how God corrects us. So we see this in the life of David. God corrects us first with love and not hate. God doesn't correct us out of anger and hatred because he's mad at us as these horrible sinners. Maybe you've felt that sort of spirit come upon you a hatred judgment, a hateful correction. God corrects like a father does his child out of love. God corrects out of love, not hate. We'll come back to these. Notice this, Proverbs 3.12. For the Lord, this is just it in a verse, the Lord corrects those he loves. Just as a father corrects a child in whom he delights. So like, so, so much so that in Hebrews, the author says, like, don't worry. If, if you're being corrected by God, don't, don't think that that's a sign of his disapproval of you or, or rather, you know, like his rejection of you. That's his acceptance of you. I don't, like, I don't correct your kids. 
wanted to a couple times, you know. I'm just kidding. Mostly mine, right? No, you correct your kids because they're your kids. And, and because you love them, and if you love them, you'll correct them because you want to help them. And this is true about God as well. God corrects his kids. It's not a sign of his rejection. It's his, it's his, it's, listen, it's a sign of your adoption. It's a sign that you belong to him if he's correcting you. Don't be discouraged, Hebrews says, if the Lord rebukes you. He only chastens the sons and daughters whom he loves. The Lord correct, corrects those he loves. So, so God corrects out of love, not hate. This is huge. God corrects out of conviction, for conviction, not, this is a, a key point here. We've got to divide this here, not condemnation. The ministry of Jesus is not a ministry of condemnation. Jesus himself said, I did not come into this world to condemn sinners. You know why? He goes, because sin already did that. He said, he who does not believe in me for salvation, it's not that they reject me and I go, fine then, thou shall be condemned. He says, no, he who does not believe is condemned already. Condemnation is our default because of sin. It's not the posture of God's heart towards humanity. When you sin, God's heart is not to condemn you, but it is to convict you. It is to call you to recognize how your sin is separating you from him, how your sin is destroying your relationship with him. It is his love to convict you by his spirit. Now, um, the Bible says in Romans 8, 1, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you're in condemnation, you're not walking in Christ Jesus. And I found, at least in the patterns of sin in my past, in my life, it's like, it's like you could think of, I'll call it this, it's like the cul-de-sac of condemnation. You ever found this? Temptation, sin, condemnation. Where does that lead you? You go, I'm going to try, God, I'm going to try better. I'm so, I'm so horrible. And the next week, temptation, sin, condemnation. And it's just this vicious cycle of just, and really, you know what you're doing? You're, you're pushing yourself farther away from God in your sin, and then you're pushing yourself farther away from God in condemnation because who wants to be close to someone that's going to condemn you? And, and so there's this cycle we can fall into, but we see the Spirit of God. God sends Nathan to David, not out of hate but love, not to condemn but to convict. And here's a key point of this, with specificity, not generality. Specifically, not generally. Okay? When the Lord, you see this especially in the New Testament when Paul writes to a church. Paul doesn't like, if there's sin in the life of a church or a Christian, notice how Paul will never just like generally, you know, shame the person. Like, you're just horrible. You ever heard that voice? You're sinful. You're jacked up. You're disgusting. All these different phrases, these general shameful blankets that get thrown over us. Like, okay, let's remember this. God is good, okay? You know, one of the greatest signs of the goodness of God, I'm so thankful for this. Um, God doesn't, when he corrects us, he doesn't just like shame us over all of our faults all at once. Maybe you've had that happen before. Where the person was like mad at you for all the things wrong with you and you're like, Okay, this is more for you than me because I'm not learning anything through this. You're getting it out. 
but this isn't who the Lord is. God doesn't over, God does not overwhelm you with the shame of all your faults all at once. So if you feel overwhelmed by the shame of all your faults all at once, that's a voice you need to reject. That's not the Lord. It's either you or it's from the very pit of hell. When the Lord convicts his people, he does so specifically. He, he doesn't go, you're just horrible. He goes, here's the specific thing you need to repent of. I mean, I'm sure David's committed a lot of other sins, but Psalm 51 isn't about like every sin David's ever committed. It's about these specific things. Now, I want you for a minute to think about that. What could be the specific sins in your life? Let's just do this. Let's just do one, okay? Let's not overwhelm ourselves. I got a big list, by the way, all right? So let's start simple. What is that one specific thing that you know God is saying? Hey, I love you enough to point to that. We sin, God corrects by his word, spirit, and people out of love, conviction, with specificity, not out of hate, condemnation, generally blanketing us with shame. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There is no separation as well. For those who are in him. Now, David does this. He confesses his sin to the Lord, or rather, he's corrected over his sin. And then this is the next step. David then confesses. This is the next step in the roadmap. So we, we sin. God corrects. And if we're following along the roadmap for repentance that honors the Lord, the next step on this, on this map is going to be that we confess our sin. And what does God do? God forgives. Psalm 51, verse 3 and 4. David says, He's confessing his sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned, this is powerful language, and done this evil in your sight, that you may be, may be found just when you speak, and blameless when you judge. In other words, God, you can't be wrong. So when you call me out on something and I disagree with it, or I disagree with what the Bible says, there's two options. All right? Either I'm wrong or God's wrong. And I got news for you. God is a pretty great record with being right. He's pretty accurate. He's pretty spot on with what's sin and what isn't. And David is seeing that. And, he's, and here's the, the biggest step in this. He's going, God, and now this is, this is amazing because this is, this is a, a decent amount of time after David has committed the sins. And it's not that David doesn't know that it's sin. Just like the thing that you're continuing and that's, it's not like you don't know that that's sin. But there's a difference between knowing something is sin and acknowledging your transgressions. That's what David does. David confesses his sin. Now, it's, it's really cool for David to say this. I'm acknowledging it because how much of David's story involved him trying to cover it up? It, it involved him trying to keep it concealed, to keep it under wraps. A lot of us, it's not that we don't know that we've done sin. We're just not acknowledging it. We're not looking at it. We're not calling it what it is. Uh, Proverbs 28, 13 says that he who covers his sin will not prosper. This is David's story up to this point. But whoever confesses and forsakes his sin will have mercy. What's the tendency when I sin? Man, it's, it's a, it's a cover-up, right? I've got to do everything to conceal this. I just got to cover over it. I'm going to turn away. I'm going to act like it, doesn't, it didn't, never even happened. And... David says the opposite. He says, I acknowledged my transgressions. Now, the Bible says this first, I want to say, in terms of confession. The Bible encourages that we confess our sins, not just to God, but also to each other. It's the book of James. And it says that in James chapter 5, that if you confess your sins to each other, 
here David's confessing his sin ultimately to the Lord, but it's to Nathan is there as a person in his life. The Bible says that if you confess your sins, not that you'll be forgiven, but you'll be healed. That's really interesting. Forgiveness isn't, we're going to talk about that. That's not the issue. But maybe you haven't experienced healing that comes through the grace of the ministry of the body of Christ. It's one thing to know grace, a whole other thing to experience the grace of God and the healing work of God's grace through community. Do you know what I'm saying? And that happens when you're honest. You go, this is my flaw. And someone can say, well, okay, good. Well, here's the good news of the gospel. And, and I just want to say, like, you're, sometimes you're not a sufficient preacher in your own life. You need other preachers. You need other voices. You need other people speaking into you to bring healing. Uh, but, but here, when David is talking about confessing his sin, he's not talking about that, though that's important. David here is talking about how he has come to agree with God. And that's what the word confession means. True confession. You know, we have like confessions of faith. To confess is to assert and agree with the truth. We confess that Jesus is Lord, for example. We agree with God that Jesus is Lord. And, and David is saying, I'm confessing. Here's a confession about my sin. And, and what David is doing in this is he's agreeing with God about the nature of his sin. This is so important. A lot of times what we do is we just kind of go, oh, little sin, little sins. Oh, another sin, just doing sin, sin. Okay, let's get it out of here. A lot of times we can kind of do this thing where we're sort of just passing it by and we're, we're kind, of, kind of nonchalantly approaching it, but there's something healthy to, ha <clears throat> to having an accurate view of sin and the nature of it and the destructive effects that it has, to, to take an honest look at it. And, and notice what David says, my sin is always before me. So it's almost like, I don't know why I envision this, but it's like David in, the, in a lab, and he's like looking under, at his sin, almost like under a microscope. And, and maybe what he was doing prior to this is he was kind of holding it behind his back. And David is going, no, I'm, I'm not going to move on from this before I take an honest look at it. You know, I think our tendency... Our tendency is to, is to put our sin behind us without ever putting it before us. It's our tendency. Just go, oh, forget things are behind. It's like, no, take a look at that. David's like, I, I'm, I'm, it's before me. I'm acknowledging it. I'm confessing it. I'm agreeing with God about what I've done. And notice one of the things that he's, he agrees with God. Notice what he says. He says, with my sin, as I'm looking at it, what he acknowledges is that God is against you and you only that I've sinned. This is remarkable. Now, it's remarkable for a few reasons. One, imagine like Bathsheba reading this, like, you killed my husband. You know, I was in the, yeah, you didn't sin against me, just the Lord, I guess, you know? Like, in some senses, this isn't true. Like, David, um, you know, like, when you sin, it affects people, it affects things, it hurts people. Uh, but, but what David is saying here is he's saying, but it's against God that I ultimately sin. And, and this is what true repentance looks like, okay? Um, we talked about this, kind of the worldly sorrow version. What worldly sorrow does is it's like a, it's like a me-centered repentance um, versus a God-centered repentance, David here is, he's like, I'm sorry for my sin. I'm broken because of the fact that it was dishonoring to the Lord. It's a God-centered repentance. It, didn't, it doesn't please the Lord to do what I did. The opposite of this is, I'm sorry, not because of a God-centered reason, but a self-centered reason. Right? Like, if you have kids, you ever seen them do this? 
Like, they can really appear repentant when they want something. You know what I mean? Like, I'll call it religious repentance. Religious repentance is when you're sorry because you want to get God's favor back. You're sorry because of the consequences. You're sorry because you want God to answer a prayer or something. It's a self-centered repentance. It's not sincere repentance. You can contrast David with Saul and see the difference. In 1 Samuel 15, Saul's a king who absolutely blows it. 1 Samuel 15, another king, the king right before David. And, and notice the way that Saul responds to his sin. He does things um, like weep, like Judas did when he betrayed Jesus. He does things like grieve. He's sorrowful. He can't believe it. But it's, it's a sorrow of, of, of sort of external response. It's not genuine. It's not about the Lord. And so David's modeling true brokenness, true humility, true repentance. He tells us in verse 16 and 17, God, you don't desire sacrifice or else I'd give it. You don't delight in burnt offering. But the sacrifices of God are a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. This is the kind of repentance that David is employing. It's genuine. It's, it's rooted in the grief over dishonoring the Lord. Now, with David's confession, there's a cry for God's forgiveness. And it's, it's really interesting. David's confession matches up with a cry to be forgiven. So he acknowledges his sin. And as he's, he looks at his sin, like, uh, I think it's interesting. He talks about how, like, his sin is always before us. Uh, some of us, we're, we're in that place because we haven't moved on from acknowledging our sin. That's all we do. We're like, I can't tell you how many Christians I meet. It's like you're more sin conscious than you are God conscious. So you're just like, my sin, my sin, my sin, I'm a sinner. It's like, chill, okay? So David acknowledges his sin, but when he acknowledges his sin, what it creates within him is this desire for God to forgive it. And he says this as he acknowledges it. We looked at it there in verse 1 and 2. He says, God, in light of my sin, he says, have mercy on me according to your loving kindness. Have you ever actually done this? God, here's the sin. Here's what I've done. Here's the transgression, the iniquity. Would you have mercy on me? Would you, uh, according to your tender mercies, now notice this language he uses. Would you blot it out? Would you wash me from it? Would you cleanse me from my sin? It's really interesting that David's desire for God's forgiveness is sort of in tandem with his desire to be clean. Because what sin can do, especially if you're keeping it before you, it can just make you feel filthy and dirty. It can do this. It has this effect. And the enemy uses that to shame us. And so David's desire is, God, cleanse me. Make me clean from this. This is a great response to sin. In, in verse 7, he says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, God, and I shall be whiter than snow. Hide your face, verse 9, from my sins, and blot out my iniquities. And in verse 14, he's like so real about this. God, deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed. You ever been here? Where you're like, God, the guilt is too great. Please deliver me from the shame of what I'm feeling. Please wash me clean. God, I, I acknowledge my sin. Please forgive me. David is pleading for God's grace and forgiveness and washing work in his life. Um, have you been there? Have you been so honest about your sin that all you had left to do was to cry out like that tax collector, God, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner, Lord. You know, it's amazing what happens when you stop living your life acknowledging everybody else's sins and start to be honest about your sin. All of a sudden, grace becomes so much more valuable. 
You start depending on God's forgiveness and love. And, and th- listen, here's what's amazing. You know, David had a prayer and he had a hope that God forgives because it's the character of God. But we have a leg up on David. We have Jesus. We have Jesus who is the forgiveness of God, who is the love of God. Don't you love this verse in 1 John 1, 9? If we confess our sins, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. It's like this is written to Psalm 51 and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The word confess here is the same word. If we agree with God about our sin, Now, I want to point something out here because I used to get really scared of this verse when I was a kid. I was like, what if I sin and then die and I didn't get a chance to confess it? I'm not forgiven, okay? Now, that's not what what John is saying. He's not saying that um, your confession enables God to forgive you because then God's forgiveness is bought and it's not given. What he's saying here is if we confess our sins, what we're going to find is every time on the other side of our confession is God's forgiveness. Every time. Every time you agree with God about your sin and you bring it before him, he is faithful to meet you there with grace. He is faithful to meet you there with fresh forgiveness. Notice it's forgiveness. It's not for botanists. It's a gift of his grace. We confess our sins, and notice this, he does this because he is faithful and he is just. How is it just for God to forgive my sin? Isn't that a great question? Like, if God was just, he would condemn me for my sin. He would judge me for my sin. And, of course, we know the answer to this is the way that God is able to be just in his forgiveness of us. The way that God is able to faithfully cleanse us is because there has been an exchange that has taken place. A righteous exchange with the person of Jesus Christ. And for those who are in Christ, here's what Ephesians 1.7 says. It says it's in Jesus that we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins. It's just for God to forgive sinners because God took our sin and placed it upon his son Jesus and Jesus' death was sufficient. It adequately and it perfectly bore for us what was needed for us to be forgiven before God. What What is needed for us as sinners to be declared righteous in his eyes. So that when we come to him with our sin, we have the blood of Jesus there to, listen, to, to cleanse us of our sin. And, and I wonder how many of us, what, what, we're, what we're doing is we're just kind of stuck here. And it, we've taken the first healthy step, which is we've responded to God's correction by acknowledging our sin. But are you as conscious of God's forgiveness as you, as you are of your sin? Are you as conscious of God's cleansing of you and your sin as you are of the sins that you've committed? We need both a sin consciousness that leads us to a grace consciousness. And this is where we wrap up. This is the hope we have. I'll invite the band to come up as we close. As we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. The last step on this roadmap of repentance is we repent. And God does more than just correct us in his love. He does more than forgive us in his love through the death and the sacrifice of his son Jesus, but he goes a step further and he restores us in his love. David repents. Um, The word repent, it doesn't mean to cry and feel bad about what you did. 
The word repent uh, comes from the, the, the word metanoia, which means to change your mind. To change is the idea. Like to make a decision to go, nope, yup, that's repentance. Nope, not doing that, not going there. God, I've gone this way. And a lot of times we, we can think of repentance as like something we do over an act that we committed. But oftentimes in repentance, when God calls people to repentance, he's not just calling them to turn away from, to change their mind about what they did, but it's often a repentance of their ways. There's deeper reasons for why you're doing what you're doing. There's, there's rooted issues for why you're living in that sin. And so repentance is not just going, I'm sorry for what I did, but it's God, it's, it's I'm sorry for where I've been going. I'm sorry for neglecting a relationship with you. I'm sorry for, for running from you. And it's turning away and back towards a relationship with God. We, we see David's repentance. He goes, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. David's like, I've been sinning since conception. That's what David says. His sin nature. He's like, even as a child, he looks at himself, he goes, man, I I've just been a sinner. It's, it's just, I'm good at it, you know? It's the one thing that, it's not like a skill that I had in my childhood that I need to recover. I'm, I'm, I'm getting better the older I get. He's like, just sin has just been my tendency. But notice what he said. He goes, though that's true, he says, God, you desire truth in my inward parts, and in the hidden part of me, you will make me to know wisdom. David is saying, though my tendency is sin, you have called me out of that. You want truth in my inward parts. You want me to be, and here's what David is saying. God, you want me to be changed from the inside out. It's really beautiful. You know, Jesus expounded on this when he said that sin proceeds from the heart. It's where sin is rooted in. You know, so really, what, it, what sins did David commit? Did he commit adultery? Yeah, but, he, but before he committed adultery, there was hatred. Did he commit uh, or rather, adultery committed lust. Did he commit murder? Jesus would say, yeah, but it was rooted in hatred in his heart. So, so David's recognizing the overflows of his life. Here's his repentance. It's not just the things that he's doing, but it's his heart. That's what he needs God to save. He, he's, he doesn't just say, God, change my life. He says, God, change my heart. Change the very core of me. That's what's wrong here. He, he prays this, such a beautiful prayer. In Psalm 51, verse 10, he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. God, change my heart. I see that, that what's at the root of all my issues is not just bad behavioral problems, but it's that my heart is bent away from you, Lord. God, my heart is bent away from you. I love this. God, would you, in your grace, give me a new heart? The Bible says, guard your heart. For from it flow all the issues of life. This is where it's rooted. And he says, God, renew a steadfast spirit in me. God, do a deep work in my heart. He says in verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. David's prayer is, God, change me. And this is where repentance must land. I see my sin. You've corrected me in your love. I see it for what it is. I receive your forgiveness and grace. I acknowledge the root problem of it is my heart. Change me there. And then God, please put me back on my feet. Some of you have just been sidelined in your sin. You, you, you've been paralyzed by your mistake. You hesitate to get more involved because of your sin. You, you keep yourselves at arm's length distance because of your shame. 
And this is right where Jesus wants to meet you. He's not just your forgiver. He's your restorer. He wants to pick you up and put you back on your feet. That's what David prays. God, put me back on my feet. Would you, would you lift me up as I come to you? Get me back in the game. I can't fight against sin laying down defeated. I can't serve you and love you and obey you and proclaim you stuck in these patterns of shame. Would you restore to me the joy of your salvation? Would you put me back on your feet? And then he says, God, then I'll teach everyone about you. I'll teach transgressors your ways. Okay? In fact, God, I'll even let you use my sin. And I'll tell people about how good you are, not, you know, by hiding my sin, but I'll say, look at my sin and look how much God loves me. David's like, I'll, I'll allow what's gone in my life to be used as a ministry for you in your glory. And let me say, th this is wherever you are today, whether sin needs to be the right, or repentance needs to be the right response to something you've done, or repentance needs to become a more recurring rhythm in your relationship with Jesus, I want to say that this is the kind of church that we want Solus to be. We don't want to be the kind of army that shoots their wounded. We want to do what Galatians 6, 1 says, Brethren, if every, any man is among you is, is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. The reason why this needs to be the ministry of the church is because this is the ministry of Jesus Jesus doesn't kick you while you're down. He corrects you because he loves you. He calls your sin what it is. He, he invites you to take a more honest look at it. But he forgives you in order to put you back on your feet to bring restoration in your life. So what does restoration need to look like in your life today? What sin needs to be acknowledged and turned from? And what kind of restoration are you missing 